Well, good morning, everybody. We are, this is an exciting day. We're starting a, a new study. Uh, I'm excited about it anyway, and maybe you will too. We'll see. Uh, well, let's start with a word of prayer, and then I have stuff to hand out, and we'll talk about what we're doing. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you grateful for your goodness to us, grateful that we're able to uh, study you and know, uh, know you, Lord, as you have revealed yourself to us. We pray for wisdom, and we pray for uh, your help, Lord, as we come uh, humbly before your word to learn. We pray for the working of your spirit in our hearts, that it may not be just information about you, but heart-changing work uh, as we get to know you, Lord. We ask these things in your son's name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, um, today we are going to start a, a, uh, a new study on who is God. And um, there's a reason why we're saying who. Uh, I know in the shorter catechism there is a what is God where it talks about his being. And, and, um, and we're going to get into that as well. But I, want, I wanted to call it who is, uh, the study who is God because what I want us to get at is everything that we're learning about him is about a person. Um, and if we forget that, we kind of get into the theology of it so deeply, we forget that this person is uh, active and working in us. And this is exciting. And it, uh, it can change our hearts. And so, uh, I have a handout I think I have enough and everything. Um, so I will just uh, start passing this out. Um, I have at the top there um, a schedule to let you know this is really is organized. We're not just making it up from week to week. Um, and as Andrew passes that out, you will see that there's a time where Andrew will be uh, teaching one of these. Um, he's just finding that out now as I say it out loud. <laughs> so hopefully he'll be here on the 18th. Oh, man. Um, <laughs> um, so uh, as you're looking at these, you'll see uh, today we start off with uh, what it means when we talk about God's oneness. God is one. Next week, we're going to talk about the threeness of God, God's three persons. We're going to talk about the beauty of the Trinity. And in that, what, we, uh, what we're going to, the reason why we talk about that is because we want to talk about that the Trinity is not a problem that needs to be fixed. Um, I think a lot of people kind of look at it as, well, this is that hard thing we have to grasp that doesn't quite fit in the rest of the world. And what, uh, what we want to understand is that the only way the world's going to make sense is if you have a God who is triune. And hopefully by that time, oneness and threeness will be deep in our minds. Um, we're going to talk about God's independence, his infinity, his holiness, his sovereignty. We're even going to talk about the problem of evil. Um, this, is a, this is a big topic uh, today where people are concerned that... Um, 
If we have an all-loving, all-knowing, all-powerful God, then why is there evil in the world? Or why is there so much evil in the world? As if we can uh, try and measure that. And, um, and then they want to know uh, how, that, how, that, uh, how we fix that logically. And what we're going to find is Scripture talks to that quite easily. And it's not as big of a problem as I think people are trying to make it. So, we'll talk about that. Uh, then we're going to talk about the Father uh, particularly. And I think this is important because um, a lot of times we talk a lot about the Son and the Holy Spirit. There's a lot of work done in that. Um, but not the Father in relation to the Son and the Spirit. And that's what we're going to talk about with those last two, uh, last two uh, workshops there. So that's the schedule. Are you excited? Is this making you super excited? You're like, man, excited. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, <clears throat> if someone comes to you and asks you, uh, who is this God or what is God? I mean, I don't know if you guys have had a lot of experience with people who are casual about religion or have rejected it at this point in their lives or whatever and they want to say well who is God anyway I mean what what do you think God is what do you typically say to someone who's asking who God is greater the universe okay so you establish that he's a a God who is the creator the work of him tells us something about him right and that tells us a lot, too. Once you establish God as creator, the one who made, that establishes him as authority. It establishes a lot of things, doesn't it? What else? You're trying to answer the question, who is God? Father. Which is an incredible thing to think about because we tend to think, well, at least the world has tended to think, that fatherhood is a way of trying to understand God instead of understanding that fatherhood is something that God is in his being. And we try to imitate that on earth. Right? There's a mimicry. Good. Anything else? Who is God? Like if you were trying to parse it down to the very... Like when we say what is a... You know, who is Andrew Dion? We kind of, you know, if we're going to say who is Andrew Dion, we might say, well, he's a pastor, and that tells us something about what he does. And he's a father, which tells us something about his role in his family. But if we want to get right down to what Andrew Dion is, uh, maybe we would say he's human. So how would we get, how do we parse that down with God? How do we say, okay, who is God down to what the most essential thing, the most, what's on our notes here? Uh, God, uh, no, wait, uh, the most basic aspect of God is what, do you think? Spirit. Okay. Uh, in our shorter catechism, it says, what is God? God is a spirit, and then it lists a lot of things that are, Really important things that I can't remember right off the top of my head, but I remember that. Good? Are you looking for a 
other spirits too who are not good. Okay. Divinity, that he is divine. Yeah, good. Yes, that's fine. <laughs> yes, sir? Okay, in his work, he has revealed himself. Yes, ma'am. He's a provider. He makes all of our needs. Good, yeah. The giver of life. Giver of life. Nice. What about outside of creation, before he even created? This is a hard thing to even talk about with the human mind. But who, or, yeah, who is God down to his most basic aspect, even before he created the world. He always has been. Eternal, that's for sure. What we're going to look at here, and this is, a, this is a distinctive of who we are as, um, as Christians, what we believe about God as Christians anyway, that the most basic aspect of God is Trinity is his triune nature. Some people call it that. And triune is good because it kind of brings in the tri-unity. So the most basic aspect of God is Trinity. Um, so when you think of Trinity, what do you think of? Three. Three. Yes, that's right. And I think in the western uh, part of the, the globe... Um, three is what we tend to think of, tri, three, uh, trinity. Uh, but what else is God? He's three, but he's also one. Okay. Um, the reason why we're breaking up uh, the trinity this way in our study is, is that oftentimes we forget that God is one. It is completely accurate to say God is absolutely one and God is absolutely three. Now, if you, if you lose those two things, you lose Trinity. So what we're going to try and, and understand as we think about the Trinity is that in your notes it says God is as much one as he is three. We tend to think of the Trinity only as God is three. But it's not that God is just three, it's that he is three and one. Now there's been a lot of uh, problems throughout history where someone wanted to make God more one than he is three, or more three than he is one. And that always leads uh, to what we call heresy. Does anyone know what that word means? pretty bad. What does heresy mean? Teaching that if you believe it, you are outside the kingdom. Yes. Yes. You are no longer Christian if you really believe a heresy. That's kind of strong. And uh, that's probably why they burnt people and things like that back in the day. <laughs> uh, I, always, uh, I always try to shock my students when I talk about such things as you know, because everyone thinks, oh, it's so terrible when they had burned. And it, and it is, it is. I'm just saying, today we've taken Scripture so lightly, we would never dream of even punishing anybody, you know, for believing, you know, a wrong thing or even disapproving. We would just 
I mean, we've gone so far on the other side, we just think, you know, well, if that's what you believe. Uh, so, I won't shock you with all that talk. So, uh, here we go. I would like you to turn to Deuteronomy 6, 4. Deuteronomy 6, 4. Um, the reason why we're starting with God's oneness is because is a simple fact that oftentimes we kind of don't think about that. But in order to understand Trinity, we have to understand that God is absolutely one God, and he's also three persons. And so this is, this is the tension. What I don't want you to do is try to fix that tension with something, because the minute you try to fix it, it breaks, right? Uh, there was a theologian that tried to imagine the Trinity was like a uh, triangle. And the triangle has three sides. But it's one triangle. That's not what the Trinity is. <laughs> that is not right. Uh, so, and it's not like an egg, where you have an oak and then the white part that you're supposed to eat because it to be healthy in the shell. It's one egg, but three different. That's not the Trinity either. Um, so the minute you try to break that, that tension, you end up believing something that's wrong. And like uh, Andrew was talking about in our Sunday schools before, there are some tensions that if you don't just hold on to those tensions, uh, you run into a lot of trouble. The minute you try to fix it with human reasoning or the limits of human thought, it breaks. And so what we want to get at is, if God is as much one as he is three, that he is, he is three and one, then what does it mean when Scripture talks about God in his oneness? Okay. So we're going to look at Deuteronomy 6. And Deuteronomy 6 is an interesting passage because before that, it's, the context of that is uh, warning against false gods and all those sort of things. Um, and then it says this in verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. These words which I, command, uh, which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and walk with them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign to your, uh, to your hand, and they shall be as frontals to your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Okay. So let me ask you this. Uh, what's going on in verse 4? Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. What is this saying about God? And it's okay to be obvious. He's one. Good. What else is it saying about God? It's ours. Our God. Okay, there's a distinction there. There's people that are worshiping other gods. Our God is one. What else is it doing there? Okay, that's uh, in the next verse. That's absolutely right. But just verse 4, there's something else it's doing. Okay, hear, O Israel, 
Your God is one. And what else does it say about God? He is the Lord. He is the Lord. Now, I know that sounded obvious. And so maybe that was, that's why it's easy to overlook. But that is a name. God is being named. Uh, when you see those, those letters, L-O-R-D, all capitalized, it's saying the formal name of God, the I am. So the formal name of God is being used to say who God is. So here in your notes there, it says <clears throat> God is named and identified. He is named. So, you know, this is the God of Moses, the one when Moses said, who shall I say is sending me? God says, I am is sending you. The I am that I am. The absolute God, Yahweh, right? Um, and there, here it's saying that he is one. And what is that in contrast to? Um, it's in contrast to all the different uh, groups around Israel who are worshiping other gods, several gods. Even people that would say, oh, I'm glad you told me about Yahweh, I can add him to my gods. Right? And he is distinct. There's a huge distinction here. This makes him distinct. Even if, in a few thousand years later, when Muhammad comes along, we can't say Allah is the same guy. This is distinct from all the other gods. And he is one. And in the next verse... Like what was uh, just brought out, what's the command for you? What are you supposed to do about this one God? Love yeah, you're supposed to love it. Isn't that interesting? You're being commanded to love. What do you think about that? Let me ask you young people in the room. There's a few of you. Um, some of you just look young, but... You guys are actually young. Okay. So, uh, so your parents decide who you're going to marry. Does that fill you with fear? Yes. <laughs> Thank you for being honest. Because, uh, you know, the big, the big understanding is that parents will, of course, pick someone hideously ugly. But they'll have a wonderful personality, and that's why you should love them. So, and so you should love this hideous person. Now, I know they're hideous, but... But they have a wonderful personality. And, and it's like, okay, uh, I'll love them because you told me to. Right? Does that seem easy for you young people? To be told to love someone? All right. Now, what's, I bring that up because that love isn't even as strong as the love that's being commanded here. I mean, you think that's a big commitment to have someone say, okay, I command you to love this person for the rest of your life. Every day, every time you wake up in the morning, every time you go to bed, this person is the one. Every day, day after day. Oh, that's interesting. Okay, good, good. Yeah, we're we're getting to something here. Now that doesn't that doesn't convince young people, does it? They're like, I don't care if it's a choice. I do not want because you know we're young people love the you know movies, books have taught us that you fall into love. You're walking along and then you fall. And there you are in a ditch with someone else. And that's what love is. 
Uh, because we're taught that uh, love is something that will happen to you that you cannot control. In fact, lots of movies tell you you can't control who you love. Um, because when you take lust um, and you call it love, then no, you can't control who you lust. Right? Uh, you walk along and lust uh, pops into your head. And uh, you feel that there isn't control over that. Uh, if someone just tells you, oh, that's what love is, then imagine an entire country that thought that way, why we would have the highest divorce rate uh, of any other country. Sure glad that's not the case, right? <laughs> right? Yes, we need to get used to sarcasm for the next ten weeks. Um, so, um, we, uh, so here we're asking what's being, uh, what's being commanded of these people is a kind of love that's even stronger than the kind of love that would be demanded of someone that says, love your wife. This is a stronger love. Why do we say that? Well, later on we find that, um, that the kind of love we're talking about would even surpass the love of family. And so this is a moment that you, know, you young people can think about. This is a moment where a command of love is being made where it's even a bigger commitment than some person standing next to you that, that is going to be your husband or wife for the rest of your life. And it says, this God is the one you are, so, you are to love. The God who is one. Yahweh, who is named. Back when Moses was asking, who should I say sends me? It is this God that you are to love. And it's so important that this love happens that you are to, um, that these words I am commanding you today, in verse 6, shall be set securely in your mind. Is that what it says? Set securely in your mind. Does anyone, does anyone's translation say, say that? What does it say in your translation? In your heart. Oh, that's interesting. Okay, so you young people standing there uh, at your wedding day and someone says, this is who you're going to love. Love this person. And that scares you. They say, well, okay. Okay, let me wrap my head around this. All right, this is the person. Okay, I'm just going to give up happiness. I'm just going to be with this person. Right? That's your mind. You are now trying to love that person with with, with your mind because you know, okay, I'm not going to be happy. I'm going to be with this person. And I'm just going to make this work. And that's your mind, right? What's being commanded here? You're hiding this where? You're putting this where? In your heart. So this means you're standing next to that person. You look over. And you're not trying to wrap your head around it. You immediately not just know, but that person is in your heart. And that's the command. It is not saying, I am looking at God... And I am trying to wrap my head around this. Well, first let me see, is God moral enough for me? Let me see. Oh, he he took a lot of lives in the Old Testament. I don't think God is moral enough for me. So I don't think, you know, I don't know if I can wrap my mind around. Let me see if someone can answer the question of whether, you know, there's, you know, since there's evil in the world, is there there too much evil? Let Let me figure all this out so I wrap my head around God, right? Well, let me make sure, you, you Christians talk about this tri-unity, this 
threeness and oneness, but God is one, but he is three persons. Let me make sure that makes sense. Let me get my head in the game first and see if I can love something like that. Is that what it's saying? What it's saying is this love isn't something you try to wrap your head around to try and figure out if God is worthy of you. It is something that you put in your heart because the God who is, the God who is the God, the truth, and all those other things that you are convinced are going to make you happy are lies. This God is commanding you to love him. And not just to wrap your head around it, but to love him from your heart. The command is saying, love him down to your heart. That is a a fascinating command, wouldn't you say? I mean, that's kind of asking a lot. It's one thing to say, okay, now you may not like me. you You may not have any affection for me. But just wrap your head around me. And follow me. Just make this happen. Right? What kind of a marriage do you think that would be? In the mornings when you wake up. A marriage like that where you just had to wrap your head around that other person and say, okay, this is my plight in life. What a silent morning that would be, right? You're stumbling around for coffee. Maybe one of the persons makes the food and... And you sit there in complete silence because this is your fate. (laughs) Maybe some of you are quite like, oh, that's actually what happened. Okay. uh, That's right. Maybe not everyone's a morning person. But I'm just trying to tell you that. I mean, isn't that a horrible uh, existence when the person you are with is just someone you've wrapped your head around? And that's what's expected of you. And that's the big fear of every young person. That's why they don't want mom and dad to pick the, parent, to pick the, the, the marriage partner because they think that's what I'm going to end up with, someone I've got to wrap my head around. And they don't believe that's love. And you're right, that's not love. You're just wrapping your head around someone, right? Just make this work. How much time do, you know, do I have in life? Okay, I can do this. But isn't that the way people think about God? I mean, that's the way the unsaved world looks at us while we go to church. Ugh, to church. Right? And we get there, and we're just, I've got to wrap my head around church. Okay, okay, we're going to sing these songs. Gotcha, we got to sit here. All right, all right, all right, time to go. Let's go. Right? I've wrapped my head around God, and I've done my work, and now it's time to get back to what I really like. And that's the way they see us. And maybe that's the way we're acting towards our God. What does it take for you to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might? And these words that I'm telling to you today aren't to be just something you wrap around your head, but something that's going to be in your heart. How does that happen? What do you guys think? Holy Spirit. Yeah. 
This is the hardest thing for my students to understand when I was teaching and teaching philosophy in the secular world. We would talk about this a lot, much to uh, the disappointment of some of my students. <laughs> this is a philosophy class, not a religion class. And I said, well, there's four sections of it. <laughs> you can go to another guy's class and they'll talk about philosophy. Now we talk about philosophy. We got it in there somewhere. My point is this. The one thing they could not wrap their head around or quite understand is this. When God commands something for it to be done, right? for these commands to be done, he's not asking these things so that you, by your strength, makes it happen. This is the problem with certain apologetics. I think we need to talk people into the kingdom. If we just get all those barriers out of the way, so you don't feel so bad, and maybe then you'll come into the kingdom. Or we get rid of these logical problems that the world has conjured up in their mind. We get those out of the way. Then you'll then you go, oh, it makes sense. Okay, I like God now. That will never happen. This is the love of God. When he says, love me with all your heart, he makes it work. He's the one that works in your heart and breaks it and makes it soft. He takes a stone heart that is resisting God with all its might and makes it soft towards him. He is doing the work. I don't know how much love it would be if God said, love me, and you had no way to do it. It would almost be unloving, wouldn't it? But he loves his people, and he tells his people, love me, and he makes it work through his own power. Reaches into your heart, breaks it, and makes it soft. Now, why am I bringing all this up about the oneness of God? There is a purpose. Um, Because one of the other things on your notes there is God, as one who is to be loved, is to be passed down this information, this love for God, right? It's not just pass this information down to your kids, right? It's not saying just let them know that God is one and let them know they're supposed to love me. Let them know that their heart is supposed to be soft towards me. It's saying that this command is to be passed down to your sons, to your children. So it is a love that is supposed to be passed down. And as this happens, generation after generation is to do this. And so what we see here is a God, and I want you to keep this in your mind, who, who is calling, who has the name Yahweh, who is the one God, who is one, is telling you to love this one God. Okay? Now, the Council of Nicaea in 325 okay, gave us a good, strong understanding of the Trinity. And that good, strong understanding is that there's three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. 
God the Father is fully God. Absolutely God. God the Son is fully God. Absolutely God. But we even say very God of very God. And God uh, the Spirit is fully God. And the Council of Nicaea also said that these three persons are one in essence. And that's important. But like all humans, right, we still want it to make sense, uh, humanly. So they took that essence as time went on and said, well, what is that essence? Even the word essence is a little philosophical for us, right? And the word essence even came from philosophical talk when they were debating all this. What is essence? Um... And so we even said words like substance, and we're trying to get that understanding of what that is. And what we're trying to really say is God is three persons, and God is one. (laughs) Do you understand what I'm saying? So even that essence, and this is what I want uh, on your notes there, the Council of Nicaea says three persons and one essence. But we've got to be careful that we don't imagine the essence to be some primordial ooze that holds three persons together. Because then we have a three-headed God, right? This is what the Muslims accuse us of. Muslims say, well, what you have is either three gods or you have a three-headed God. Or... was that? Or you have a God above the triad God. Yes. That which holds us together would be more than... And and in between all that are all the heresies that have come before and after the the Council of Nicaea. So I'm telling you, this is a difficult thing to understand, but it's usually more difficult when we say, well, this is too hard to understand, let me take this and try and make it human. We really want to make God human so that it satisfies us. What we really want is a Superman that we can identify with that way. What we don't want is a God who is, who is a God, and therefore uh, very hard to understand. And so one thing I want us to understand from this text is that God's oneness, and this is the, this is the star by, um, on the bottom there, God's oneness, his essence, is still personal. When we talk about God in his oneness, he is still a personal God. Do you understand what I'm saying? When we get this from Deuteronomy 6, because God in his oneness is telling us to love him. And we will find that God in his threeness will tell us to love the Father, love the Son, and love the Holy Spirit. What I'm asking you to do to truly grasp what Scripture tells us about the Trinity, the very name that our church has been named, right? When we talk about the Trinity, try to understand that that tension is always going to be there. When we try to fix God, uh, we end up breaking the Scripture's commands. 
When we try to fix God, we end up breaking the Scripture's commands. What we end up doing is making a different God. So God is one as much as he is three. Our temptation is to say, well, God is three and his oneness, that we don't quite understand that's its essence, kind of a, <coughs> an overall thing that the three live inside of, like a dome. I mean, I don't know how you're picturing it, but whatever it is, when we think that way, we're thinking wrong, right? What was it, Gregory of, and maybe someone can help me, and very few of us will care if I get the name right. Gregory of Nessianzas or something like that? Nazianzas. Nazianzas. I like that better. We're Americans. We can change stuff. <laughs> we don't like the way... Fiance. Okay, uh, we take whatever, you know. It's ours now. Uh, that's how we do things. Um, so uh, Gregory of Kansas once said, once said uh, when I start thinking about God, this is, a, this is not a direct quote. I'm not that kind of a person. But this is my understanding of what he was saying. That whenever I think of God in his, in his threeness, I... I'm pulled right back to his oneness. And as I start thinking about him in his oneness, I'm immediately pulled back to his threeness. Because what we're not saying is God really is three persons, but not really one. I mean, that's just kind of something holding those three persons together. That's not, that's bad. What we are saying is God is absolutely one. And he's absolutely three. All at the same time. We don't like that tension. But when Andrew gets to the beauty of the Trinity, what we're going to find is that doesn't become a problem. It actually answers all the questions of how this world works. I'll let you in on a very, very short philosophical lesson. Every philosopher that has ever lived, every one of them, that has ever lived is trying to answer one question. Every single one. And the question is this. We live in a world with many, many things. How is it that all these many things really keep pointing to one thing? All of them. The very first uh, philosopher uh, that, that we call a philosopher, Thales, thought, well, everything seems to be many things, but they seem to be all joined together. The way water works, right? You can take water and separate it into many things, but then when you pour them all together, it's one thing. And that's the way the world looks. Another guy named Heraclitus said, well, it's, the world's more like fire, right? Everything's always changing. Fire's always changing, 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 but that's the thing that makes it all one, changing. He's a guy famous for saying, I put my foot in a river, then I re the next time I put my foot in the river, it's a different river. So, anyway, it doesn't matter. But it comes all the way to it comes all the way to even philosophers today who are still trying to think this way. Stephen Hawking, you guys remember him? What did he want? He wanted to say you have this giant universe of many things that all came from one thing. Right? This was his what he called M theory. That everything comes uh, back to this one event, this one particle, this one thing that came into existence from nothing, is what he believed. 
and from that one particle, everything. They're still doing it. Why is it that we have this tension from the beginning of philosophical work to now? Why, how we marry this idea that there seems to be many things, but one thing, many, one, many, one. Why? Because a creator who is many and one, three and one, put his fingerprint on his creation to the point where you can't get away from that question. And the minute you start thinking the world is not from one source, you have a huge problem. The minute you start thinking the world, the universe, isn't really many, then you come into another problem, right? The universe really is many, many things, but it all is from one thing, our God. Throughout the universe, people have been perplexed by this, but not if you understand the Trinity. At least understand as much as we can. And so we can see God's uh, distinction as one has a lot to do with our treatment of God as distinct when he says, have no other gods before me. If we look at Exodus, if you will, just very quickly. Exodus 20. Uh, Then God spoke these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generations of those that hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands of generations, to those who love me and keep my commandments. The reason why this is all important is because when we think of our God, We are thinking of a triune God, a God who is one and in his oneness demands us to love him and in his threeness demands us to love him, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And that is the God we serve. There is no other God like this. And because there is no other God like this who is the God, then have no other gods before him. Do not change him into a God you can better understand. Do not change him into a God that makes more sense for you or that has a better understanding for you or that you can wrap your head around better. Cry upon, cry to the God who demands love from you and not just demands it, but it has the power to soften your heart so that that love is possible in you, a real affection that you have for him, an affection that is so deep that these mysteries of our God does not present a barrier to your, to, to your thought life and to your uh, spiritual life, but provides excitement and adoration and glory where the Apostle Paul says, 
Who can know the mind of God? How infinite are his ways. They are beyond our ways. Beyond finding out. And he's not saying that's a barrier. Oh, how can I serve a God like that? He's excited about a God like that. And only God can soften a heart to be rejoicing in his mystery instead of blocked by it. That's what I hope we find throughout this throughout this study, that the mysteries of God do not become a barrier to you, but become an opportunity to glorify him better. I will say this as we close. One of the things that I fear our generation has, has missed out on is intelligent glorifying of God. We think glorifying God is an easy thing that you're just like, oh, I'm so glad there's a God and and, you know, we sing a song and we feel like that's enough. Like that's really what glorification is. But we, if we really look at scripture, good glorification of God is hard work because you have to know him enough to know how to glorify him. What is it about God we can glorify? Thank you, Lord, that you are one and in your oneness you are personal. And in your threeness you are personal to us and you break our hearts to you. So that we can love you. That's intelligent glorifying God. Right? That in his mystery we, we glorify. We don't say, oh, that's a problem. We don't become downcast. We become excited. And that is what makes Christianity so different than all the other religions. All the other religions have a superman to, to worship. And we have an actual God where we worship him in his mysteries. It's a glorious thing. It's exciting. I hope that comes across as we get through here. Um, uh, we, need to, we need to go. Uh, I will pray. Uh, if you have questions uh, or anything more, uh, come to me uh, afterwards. That's great. I, I just don't want to take up too much more time. So let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for, uh, for who you are. Not only the things you have done for us, but we glorify you for who you are, that you are one. In your oneness, you have commanded things that we can do only through the work of your spirit from your threeness. Lord, that is a mystery to us and it is glorifying to us, Lord. We thank you for that. We pray for our worship today, that it will glorify you well. We pray for Andrew as he speaks that your spirit will work deep in our hearts that it might be they might be broken before you, Lord, as we think on your word. We ask these things in your son's name. Amen.